Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. We are getting into the home stretch of this series finally, but before we get started, I wanted to say a few things about this podcast. This is an independent, ad free show, and that means I am completely dependent on your support, and there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your shows on. When you do, it helps give California Dreaming more visibility, it brings in more listeners, and that's ultimately what we want. You can recommend the podcast in listener discussion and fan groups. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, give us some likes and retweets and whatnot over there. And if you can't get enough California Dreaming, then you can subscribe to Patreon where for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to dozens of exclusive bonuses that you won't hear anywhere else. We are in the middle of a series right now on one of the worst mom borderline serial killers ever. So if that sounds fun, check that out. You can find the link in the show notes. And if a subscription isn't something that you are interested in, but you would still like to help pay some bills, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. The sources of this episode include the book by Wall Street journalist John Carreyrou entitled Bad Blood, as well as many articles online and documents about this case. Everything will be cited in the show and in the show notes as needed. All right. Let's get back to our story. Let's quickly recap the last episode. We discussed what led Fortune Magazine legal correspondent Roger Parloff to Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, and he is really the one who was the very first to put her on the cover of a major magazine. After Parloff's article published, Elizabeth started gracing magazine covers left and right. She was attending red carpet events, guest speaking at stuff like TED Talks, placing on rich people lists, getting awards, just all that junk. I went down all the lies that Elizabeth told Parloff that he included in his article, and he did write a follow-up later on a little more than a year later when he realized that he had been bamboozled. I think I spent too much time talking about all the lies and all the fluff, but I'm really excited to finally begin to see Elizabeth and Sonny start to squirm as their house of cards begins to collapse. So I am going to try to stay on track, and that means no messing around. I'm sticking to the script. It's all business, okay? Here we go. Three weeks after the Halloween party, Theranos headquarters had made the move to their new location, the $26 million building located in the Stanford Research Park. Every department had moved there with the exception of the clinical lab. That had been moved to the manufacturing plant where Elizabeth hoped that one day that would be the location where thousands of Theranos blood testing analyzers would be built. Adam Rosendorf had his brand new office and that's where he was at getting some of his work done when he received a call from Therabro and 
Lizzie's bro, Christian. He told Adam that they had received yet another complaint from a doctor regarding patients' blood tests. Turns out, Adam had been dealing with countless complaints in the 14 months since they did the Walgreens ribbon cutting at the very first wellness center location in Palo Alto. Since then, wellness centers had been popping up all over the Phoenix metropolitan area, and the complaints had been piling up in Arizona ever since. Adam was the one who was given the job of fielding all of those complaints. Over and over again, Adam Rosendorf was being forced to pretty much lie to these doctors that were calling in with the complaints and trying every which way that he could to convince them that Theranos blood results, blood test results were as accurate as traditional testing. But Adam knew that that wasn't the case. In fact, he knew that Theranos blood tests were unreliable, inaccurate, and that nobody should be having any tests conducted through Theranos. It was getting to the point that Adam simply couldn't stomach lying to these doctors knowing damn well that they were right. Not only were test results totally unreliable, they were getting called out on those inaccurate results, but they were also getting called out for the fact that they had been claiming that all of these tests could be run on a finger stick sized sample of blood, yet most patients were getting blood drawn through traditional venipuncture and being required to give at least one or two large test tubes of blood. Getting that call from Christian for Adam Rosendorf was the last straw. He couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't lie to these doctors and their patients. The guilt was eating away at him. So when he got that call from Christian and Christian told him to take yet another complaint, Adam finally said no. And when they hung up, he immediately emailed Elizabeth and Sonny that he was putting in his notice and to please take his name off the laboratory's CLIA certification. Elizabeth sent a reply expressing her disappointment that he was resigning but he did say that he would stay for another month in order to give them time to find a replacement. So for the first half of Adam's notice time, he went on vacation. He spent Thanksgiving with his family on the East Coast. And when he got back, it was a couple of weeks into December. And Adam had shown back up to work in order to work out a plan to make the transition to the new lab director to, for all of that to go as smoothly as possible. Sunny had come down with the head of human resources, a woman named Mona Ramamurthy. And they went down there to meet Adam in the lobby. They asked him to come into a conference room so that they could speak privately, which he did. Sunny let Adam know that they were terminating him immediately and he gave Adam a document that said affidavit of Adam Rosendorf at the top. According to Bad Blood, it said that under penalty of perjury under the laws of California, that he promised to never disclose any proprietary or confidential information learned during his employment with the company. It also said, quote, 
I do not have any electronic or hard copy information relating to Theranos in my possession in any location, including personal email accounts, any personal laptops or desktops, trash or deleted folders, USB drives, home, car, or any other location. Sunny also let Adam know that they knew that he sent a whole bunch of work-related emails to himself, and he demanded that Adam give Mona access to his private Gmail account so that she could go through and delete everything. And Adam was like, no way. Theranos had no right to try and access his Gmail. That was an invasion of privacy, and he was not going to sign any more papers. So as you can imagine, Sonny's little man temper started bubbling up, turning his little face all dark red. He couldn't believe Adam's defiance. And he turned to Mona and he was just fuming while he said, can you believe this? Then Sonny did something that made no sense. He offered to hire Adam, an attorney, so that they could put these matters to bed. And Adam was like, yeah, right. Like I'm going to have an attorney that you want to pay for to represent me. That's the dumbest thing he'd ever heard. If Theranos is paying the attorney, that means that attorney is beholden to Theranos, not him. Sonny was really that dumb if he thought Adam would actually agree to that ridiculous offer. He turned down Sonny's offer to get him an attorney and he let him know that he wanted to leave and he wanted to leave right now. Mona had gone to get Adam's backpack out of his office and he turned in his company laptop and phone, though he did manage to reset the phone before handing it back over, and Adam Rosendorf has left the building. But Sonny wasn't simply going to let Adam off the hook without getting him to sign that affidavit and to allow him access to the Gmail so that he could have all of those emails that he sent to himself deleted. Over the next couple of days following his termination, Adam's voicemail box was blown up with messages from both Sonny and Mona demanding that he come back, demanding that he sign the affidavit, and demanding access to his Gmail, otherwise they were going to sue him. Adam knew that he was going to need an attorney, so he retained a personal injury and malpractice attorney that he found in San Francisco and retained her services for $10,000. But Adam's lawyer almost right away could see that the writing was on the wall. Adam really didn't have very many options. His attorney was certain that Theranos would be able to make the case that he did breach the confidentiality agreement that he signed when he was hired. And even if they weren't able to make their case against him, they could very well have him in and out of court for months, possibly even years. And with the kinds of money that Theranos had access to at the time, if they couldn't win their case, they would be just as content to bankrupt him. Adam's attorney strongly advised him that he could lose everything, and she wanted him to really consider was being in the standoff with Theranos really worth the trouble. But Adam can tell that his attorney was pretty much being bullied by David Boy's law firm, and remember, Boys is one of the most powerful attorneys out there. Yeah, they're still representing Theranos, and they were trying to intimidate Adam's attorney, and it was pretty much working. She told Adam that the best advice that she could give him 
would be to sign the affidavit and let them delete all the emails. She did say that she would draft an order requiring them to keep all of the original emails to not destroy them. And even though there's no saying that Theranos would actually do that, it was the best advice that she could give Adam to protect himself. So he ended up taking her advice. That night at home, Adam went into his Gmail and deleted all of the emails that he had forwarded to himself, all 175 of them. In the meantime, some nine months had passed since Richard Fwiz had settled that lawsuit that Theranos had filed against him by withdrawing the patent that he had obtained in order to try to get one up on Elizabeth. But he was still pretty angry, to a point that he had slipped into a catatonic state for about a week following the end of the lawsuit. In fact, Richard was so upset that he wouldn't even talk to his wife about it. So she ended up having to call his sons to try and find out what was wrong with him. While Richard was going through the lawsuit with Theranos, he had actually found someone to talk to that had known Elizabeth from back before Theranos was a thing, and her name was Phyllis Gardner. Phyllis was someone that Richard had known for many years, too. She and her husband, Andrew, had been slightly involved with Theranos in the early days. Phyllis was a Stanford Medical School professor who Elizabeth had spoken to when she was contemplating dropping out of Stanford to pursue launching a biomedical tech startup. It was the first of Elizabeth's ideas that she had proposed to Phyllis, the patch with the microneedles that would monitor a patient's blood to diagnose what was going on, and that same patch would be used to administer treatment. Phyllis Gardner didn't think the idea was possible or plausible. And she told Elizabeth so, but ended up referring her to her husband, who was a veteran in the biotech industry. And he had actually served on a beta version of Elizabeth's board of directors, but that sort of fizzled out within a couple of months. That whole interaction between Phyllis and Elizabeth happened more than 10 years earlier. And I don't even think I brought it up in the beginning of this series because it was not something that was touched on all that much, but now we're getting back to the beginning. We're going to start digging around and trying to figure out the genesis of all of Elizabeth's nonsense here. Since Elizabeth's company had really started making waves as the brand new unicorn on the Silicon Valley block, Phyllis still wasn't a believer. She simply did not think that Elizabeth with zero experience or education in medicine or science, had really gone on to invent this groundbreaking blood analyzer. No matter how much the hype started to build up around Elizabeth and Theranos, Phyllis did not believe that the technology actually existed. And she became even more convinced of that when her husband told her that he was chatting with a salesperson from Siemens Diagnostics and he found out that one of their biggest buyers was Theranos. It doesn't take a genius to make that connection. If Theranos had technology that would have every other diagnostic equipment manufacturer on the ropes, 
Why in the world would Theranos need to be one of their own competition's biggest customer? Richard had also come to the conclusion that Elizabeth and Theranos were full of it and didn't have any sort of brand new or never before seen diagnostic technology either. According to Carrie Rue, Richard was in Palo Alto for some pretrial motions back in the fall of 2013, right after Theranos had gone live in the Palo Alto store. Richard had called Walgreens to see if he could get a creatinine test done there using the finger stick method. Richard had been diagnosed just a couple of weeks earlier with aldosteronism, which has to do with some malfunction with the hormones that causes high blood pressure. His doctors told him that they wanted him to keep tabs on his creatinine levels just to make sure that there wouldn't be any damage done to his kidneys. So he called Walgreens to make an appointment for a creatinine test, which doctors order pretty regularly. But the person who answered Richard's call told him that they do not offer that test without an authorization from the CEO of Theranos. That didn't sound right to Richard at all. And that coupled with the fact that Theranos had been so secretive about everything and that they had attempted to prevent Ian Gibbons from testifying when Richard wanted him subpoenaed because his name was on all of Theranos' patents alongside Elizabeth's. And so Richard was more certain than ever because of all of this information that Theranos was a sham and Elizabeth was a fraudster. So what's the best way to go up against a company like Theranos and its CEO? You, I guess, introduce their enemies to one another because that's what Richard did. He went ahead and introduced Phyllis to Ian Gibbons's widow, Rochelle. And to refresh, Ian was one of Theranos' chief scientists for a really long time. He was with Theranos much, much longer than many of those who came before and after him. And he had suffered two demotions and even one firing, which was taken back later on that same day. But things just weren't the same for Ian anymore. Elizabeth had changed, and his role at Theranos had changed as well. Ian had been pretty much reduced to the level of an entry-level employee when he had such a long and storied career in science and diagnostics. And it was a thing that Ian took very hard. And when he was told that he was going to be subpoenaed by Richard Fuzz's attorney to testify, he thought for sure that Elizabeth and Sonny were going to disappear him. The stress and anxiety was too much for Ian. And he ended up attempting to take his own life the day before he was supposed to go in for his deposition. He was in a coma for a week before he succumbed to his injuries. Well, just as Richard had hoped, Phyllis and Rochelle connected immediately. And really, the only thing that bound these two women who never knew each other before was their mutual skepticism and distrust of Elizabeth Holmes. So between them and Richard, they sort of created this little anti-Elizabeth club and Theranos deniers. There is just one tiny problem. In their little land of Liz haters, it was population three and only three. 
it was feeling like they were the only people in the world that didn't believe in Elizabeth at that time. The mini lab, the Edison, whatever it was that Elizabeth was claiming to have invented, it was a figment of her imagination. She invented this technology in her head, but was absolutely incapable of bringing it into reality. I don't really think Richard Phyllis and Rochelle were the only ones. They were simply the only ones who weren't under threat of being crushed by the Theranos litigation machine. We know that there are plenty of people who walked away from Theranos, and it was because they could no longer allow themselves to be a part of the games of Theranos, the games that they were playing with people's lives. But as it seemed for the time being, the three of them, Phyllis, Rochelle, and Richard, they're pretty much on their own. It would be only a matter of days after Adam Rosendorf's termination that the New Yorker put out its own article about Theranos with the focus on Elizabeth's professional profile. It was published in the December 15, 2014 issue, and basically it was very similar to the Fortune magazine article. It had many more details and it was lengthier than Roger Pollard's article, which is the one that catapulted Elizabeth into celebrity status. But something was different this time. With this New Yorker article, and that is, it just so happened to catch the eye of a doctor in Missouri who immediately thought that the claims about Theranos' technology was sketchy. In other words, he didn't believe Theranos could do what it was claiming it could do in that article, and his name was Dr. Adam Clapper. We will call him Dr. Adam to distinguish him from Adam Rosendorf. Dr. Adam was a forensic pathologist and a blogger on the subject that he called Pathology Blog. That whole deal about Theranos running hundreds of diagnostic tests on a single finger stick drop of blood didn't sound plausible. And the article in The New Yorker reflected some of the skepticism from some individuals in the industry, including a scientist at Quest Diagnostics, who didn't believe one would be able to obtain accurate results from such a small sample of blood, and the article also made mention of the fact that Theranos had yet to publish any peer-reviewed data. Elizabeth had her ways of backing up her fibs and shade, and one of them was to direct doubters to an article that Elizabeth co-wrote in a professional journal called Hematology Reports, and it was something that Dr. Adam had actually never heard of before. And he was familiar with just about all of the medical journals. So he researched hematology reports and found out that they only published online, that it was based out of Italy, and basically they let anyone who wanted to publish an article in their journal for a flat fee of $500. When Dr. Adam looked up Elizabeth's article, he discovered that the only data that she cited came from a single blood test taken from a total of six individuals. That was it. He was stunned, as this was clearly not enough samples to use for an article in a medical journal. And beyond that, it was actually ridiculous. So Dr. Adam turned to his blog to write up his opinion about Theranos and the New Yorker article. He brought up 
the journal that Elizabeth wrote in Article 4 and how obscure and relatively unknown that that particular publication happened to be, and that the study that the article was based on was quite thin and unconvincing. And Dr. Adam basically said that unless Theranos can actually prove what they claim their technology is capable of, then he will remain dubious. Now, it's not like Dr. Adam's blog had a huge number of subscribers. It was just a matter of his blog article about Theranos reaching just the right individuals. And it just so happened that Richard Fuzz's son, Joe, happened across it while he was doing an internet search. He immediately told his dad about the article, and as soon as he read it, he reached out to Dr. Adam and let him know that his instincts were right, that he was really onto something big there. And Richard told Dr. Adam that he had a couple of people that he wanted him to speak with, and that would be Phyllis and Rochelle. He wanted him to hear them out because what they have to say is very important in terms of getting some more background information about Theranos' shady tactics. Now, Dr. Adam was very interested in what he was being told by the Lizzie Haters Club. And he was especially struck when they told him about Ian's untimely death. But the fact is, there wasn't much there beyond what he already wrote in his blog. And he wasn't quite sure if what the three of them were telling him could prove that anything nefarious was going on within the walls of Theranos. It was circumstantial at best. If they were going to move forward and publish any more about Theranos, they were going to have to get some rock-solid evidence. Richard liked what he was hearing, but he was also getting fed up with Theranos and Elizabeth continuing to explode into this multi-billion dollar company when there is a tiny community of people who knew that it was all a fraud. Richard was growing increasingly resentful and embittered. Remember, Richard Fizz is the kind of person that cannot rest until he gets his revenge against anyone that he feels has wronged him. He wasn't going to rest until he saw Elizabeth's name and Theranos dragged through the mud. Only a couple days passed when Richard received an email notification from LinkedIn that somebody had viewed his profile. The person who looked him up was Adam Rosendorf. While Richard didn't know Adam, he couldn't recall ever hearing this person's name. His interest was piqued because one of Adam's jobs that was listed on his profile was lab director at Theranos. Richard went ahead and sent Adam a message via LinkedIn's messenger, hoping that they would be able to chat. Richard wasn't all that optimistic about hearing back from Adam, but he figured that you never know unless you try. The next day, Richard did receive a reply and Adam provided him with his phone number. And Richard, who was out running errands at the time, hurried home and went into his office and called Adam up. When Richard's call was answered, what immediately struck him was how frightened Adam sounded on the phone. And according to Bad Blood, Adam wanted one thing to be clear. He said to Richard, Dr. Fwiz, the reason I'm willing to talk to you is because you're a physician. You and I took the Hippocratic Oath which is to first do no harm. Theranos is putting people in harm's way. 
Then Adam began going down the list of problems that he had with Theranos during his time as the lab director. Richard listened intently and tried jotting everything down because Adam was talking at a pretty nervous and fast pace. This is the list that Richard wrote down. Lied to Clea people and cheated. Rollout disaster. Finger stick not accurate. Using venipuncture. Using Siemens equipment. Ethical breaches. False thyroid results. K results all over the map. And K is the periodic table symbol for potassium. And in case you wanted a bit more useless information, potassium is derived from the English word potash. Potash are various mined and manufactured salts that contain potassium in water-soluble form. The name comes from pot ash, which refers to plant ashes or wood ash that is soaked in a water pot, which is the main way it is manufactured in the that it was manufactured in the pre-industrial era. The periodic table symbol K comes from callium, which is the medieval Latin word for potash, and that is why potassium is given the symbol K on the periodic table. Richard also wrote down false pregnancy errors, and he wrote down that Adam Rosendorf told Elizabeth that they were not ready to go live but she insisted on proceeding anyway. Richard asked Adam if he would be willing to speak to his son Joe and his friend Phyllis Gardner. He really wanted them to hear what Adam had to say, seeing as he had actually been on the inside and knew all of the things that Theranos was doing was wrong. Adam said that he would talk to them, but he really was only going to be able to tell them the same things that he told to Richard. He didn't want to take things too far. He didn't want to reveal too much. Adam was being harassed by hard-hitting Theranos attorney David Boys, and he did not have the kinds of money that it would take for him to defend himself if he were to be sued by Theranos. Richard understood that Adam was stuck in a hard place, but it was important for Adam to let it be known that Theranos was putting patients in harm's way, but that he was also bound by those NDAs that he signed when he was hired, and he just couldn't risk everything over this. He also signed that affidavit. But Richard just knew that he had something big right there with Adam. He knew that this was a guy who could blow the lid off of Theranos. Richard just wasn't going to leave it alone. He had to do something with this information. Richard called Dr. Adam Clapper back and told him about having gotten in touch with Theranos' former lab director. So now they have this inside information. This is a guy who knows, in no uncertain terms, that Theranos is misleading everybody with their lies, their fake results, and fictitious technology that doesn't exist. Dr. Adam agreed that they did have something good beyond just the circumstantial evidence that they had up to that point and that they were really onto something here. But the problem is, is that none of them, Dr. Adam included, would be able to withstand the chances of going up against 
a $9 billion company that's being represented by David Boyes. The potential legal ramifications could crush all of them. Aside from that, Dr. Adam was just a blogger and it was a thing that he did for fun. He wasn't a professional journalist. That's what it would really take if anyone had a chance at taking Theranos down. It would have to be somebody in the world of journalism on a solid foundation that would be able to take Theranos on. Dr. Adam also reminded Richard that he had a full-time practice and he just wouldn't be available to give this kind of story the time that it needed. It really would need to be taken on by a full-time professional investigative journalist that knew what they were doing. The upside is that Dr. Adam thought that he might have a connection that they could reach out to. In the couple of few years that he had been writing his pathology blog, he did speak to a handful of investigative journalists regarding malfeasance in the lab industry. And there was one journalist in particular that Dr. Adam thought might just be the right person to look into Theranos a little bit deeper. It was this journalist that he got to know at the Wall Street Journal. So let's fast forward to Monday, February 9th, 2015. John Carreyrou was in his cluttered office at the Wall Street Journal's newsroom located in Manhattan. John, who had just finished a 12-month-long investigation into Medicare fraud, was looking for the next thing to get himself involved in. When John finishes a story, he always seemed to have a bit of a hard time. He was kind of hung up when it came to moving on to the next story. He got kind of stumped, stuck. But eventually, something always came along. Or someone calls your phone with potentially your next big juicy story. And it just so happened that John got that phone call. When he answered it, it was none other than Dr. Adam Clapper. It just so happened that John had reached out to Dr. Adam several months earlier when he needed some help understanding how laboratory billing worked for one of his articles related to his investigation into Medicare. The information that John received from Dr. Adam was helpful when he used it to expose a fraud going on with a cancer treatment center that he was investigating. Dr. Adam told John that he thinks that he has happened upon a potentially huge story. John says that journalists receive tips from people all the time, and mostly they really don't go anywhere, but John does listen to each one of them just in case there is something to a tip. And Dr. Adams' timing couldn't have been better because John had been looking for his next big expose. Dr. Adam first wanted to know if John had read anything about Theranos and its supposedly prodigious CEO, Elizabeth Holmes. Specifically, he wanted to know if he had read the recent article in The New Yorker. And it turns out that John did read that article and now that Dr. Adam was reaching out to him, he did think that there was some things that sounded kind of suspect in terms of Theranos and its supposed technology. 
Again, not having any peer-reviewed studies published was something that stood out to John. There was nothing specific that backed up what Elizabeth was claiming. And by this time, John Carreyrou had been writing about healthcare-related topics for more than a decade, and he already knew that there was not one single advancement in medical technology that did not have any peer-reviewed data published. Not one. John also pointed out something that he had read in the New Yorker article that kind of had him scratching his head. Elizabeth Holmes gave this description of her company's groundbreaking technology. Quote, A chemistry is performed so that a chemical reaction occurs and generates a signal from the chemical interaction with the sample which is translated into a result which is then reviewed by certified laboratory personnel. You really don't have to be all that savvy in science or chemistry to know that that statement is a bunch of baloney. John Carreyrou said it sounded like a statement that could come from a high school student in chemistry class. The author of the article, the New Yorker article, Ken Oletta, said that Elizabeth's description of Theranos' technology was comically vague. Among the things that Elizabeth claimed in the New Yorker article included that all a patient needed was a note from their doctor, their ID, and insurance information, and you could have your blood drawn right there inside of Walgreens, that all you would need to give is a finger stick size sample of blood, that several tests can be ran on that single drop, and all of it would be up to 90% less than what it costs to do traditional blood testing. For example, the average cholesterol test can cost more than $50. At Theranos Wellness Centers in Walgreens, the cholesterol test costs only $2.99. Elizabeth told the New Yorker that she, her mother, and her grandmother hate needles. So much so, Elizabeth claimed, that her mother and her grandmother would pass out at the sight of needles and blood. I don't know why, but I don't believe that. I don't have any proof of that. It just seems like one of the most extreme things that you could potentially say happened to someone who was about to get their blood drawn and just use it to give some credence to Elizabeth and her motivation for wanting to create a technology that doesn't cause widespread panic and terror the way that traditional blood tests tend to do, she says. And Elizabeth having said, quote, I really believe that if we were from a foreign planet and we were sitting here and said, okay, let's brainstorm on torture experiments, the concept of sticking a needle into someone's arm and sucking blood out slowly while the person watches probably qualifies. And the author of the article, Aletta, made a comment about Elizabeth's voice. And he actually pointed out how her tone changes when he wrote, quote, Holmes speaks in a near whisper. On stage, her voice drops an octave and takes on a formal instructional cadence. He's referring to Elizabeth's TED Med talk. To me, this article does have some hints of cynicism in it when Oletta wrote, quote, Holmes thinks that getting a blood test should be a wonderful experience. And the aim of Theranos is to lower barriers. 
I just kind of felt like because he put the world wonderful in quotation marks that the whole sentence was like dripping with sarcasm. Like, yeah, getting a blood test should be a completely blissful experience, right? The fact that Oletta said that Elizabeth's voice drops an octave has me thinking that he believed that it was fake because I haven't been able to prove or disprove whether or not Elizabeth faked her voice to this day. I still don't know for sure. So anyway, when it came to Elizabeth as a person, Oletta wrote, quote, her home is a two-bedroom condo in Palo Alto, and she lives an austere life. Although she can quote Jane Austen by heart, she no longer devotes time to novels or friends. She doesn't date. She doesn't own a television and hasn't taken a vacation in years. Her refrigerator is empty as she eats most of her meals at the office. She is a vegan, and several times a day, she drinks a pulverized concoction of cucumber, parsley, kale, spinach, romaine, lettuce, and celery. And then Arletta's article goes on and on about Elizabeth's whole life story that I know that I have already tortured you all to death with the details of at least once. So let's move along. When John thought about the article again in The New Yorker, he started to think, yeah, something just doesn't seem right. Something's going on here. It just didn't make sense that the Stanford dropout that had no background in biomedical technology or chemical engineering would have invented a blood testing machine that would change the world of diagnostics forever. In some industries, maybe you could get away with quite a lot. But when it comes to medicine and medical technology, there's no getting around it. You have to have the training, years of training, medical degrees, decades of experience and research. These are things you can't teach yourself huddled in your room. Dr. Adam thought the same thing that John did when he read the article too. Dr. Adam also told John that there were some individuals who had reached out to him about Theranos, but he didn't want to reveal too much about who these people were and what it was that they had to do with Theranos but he knew that they had information that John would want to hear. So Dr. Adam wanted to make sure that this group of individuals would be willing to talk to the Wall Street Journal's investigative reporter. And while John Carreyrou waited to hear back, he did some Googling and that's when he discovered the Wall Street Journal op-ed article that sang the praises of Theranos almost a year and a half earlier. That's the one that Elizabeth engineered and timed to come out at the same time as the Walgreens ribbon cutting. So this made things a little bit complicated for John because this meant that a reporter with his own newspaper was amongst the explosion of media attention that Elizabeth and Theranos started getting. The Wall Street Journal was actually the very first mainstream media outlet to write about Theranos. But John wasn't too concerned with the conflict. There are some departments that are really cut off from each other for whatever reasons. And there have been times when the Wall Street Journal ran contradictory stories. A couple of weeks after Dr. Adam and John Carreyrou connected about Theranos, Dr. Adam connected John with some of the major players that are going to have a hand in seeing Theranos 
crash and burn. Richard Fwiz, his son Joe, Phyllis Gardner, and Ian Gibbons's widow, Rochelle. The thing is, John needed to make sure that these people didn't have some sort of personal beef with Elizabeth. He quickly found out that the Fwizzes had been sued by Theranos, and it ended up costing the Fwizzes several millions of dollars. Fwizz might have a bone to pick with Elizabeth, which makes him potentially unreliable. But then one of them mentioned to John that Theranos had just recently parted ways with their clinical lab director. In Carrie Rue's book, Bad Blood, he refers to Adam Rosendorf by his whistleblower alias, Alan Beam. And he had been making allegations that there were some seriously shady things going on at Theranos. And John was interested also in what Ian Gibbons might have had to have said about Theranos to Rochelle. And, you know, that aspect of the story was a tragedy. And we can't help but feel that Theranos, Elizabeth, and Sunny are, on some level, somehow responsible for what was happening to Ian leading up to his death. But the person John really needed to get to talking to was Adam Rosendorf. He's the lab director. He's the key. It took several calls over several days for John to actually get Adam Rosendorf on the phone. And it was obvious that Adam was very nervous. And it was also obvious that Adam had to get this burden off of his chest. The only way Adam said that he would talk to John is if he swore on his firstborn that he would keep his identity a secret. And John was able to make that promise. It's a cornerstone of journalism, keeping your sources, identities, confidential. Adam confided in John that he was being harassed by Theranos' attorneys, and if they ever found out that he was talking to a reporter, they would sue him into bankruptcy. John assured Adam several times that he would keep his identity confidential, and he had no problem agreeing to that. Adam was the guy with the first-hand information. He was there in the laboratories witnessing everything. Everything else that John had from the Fwizzes, Phyllis Gardner, and Rochelle Gibbons, all of that stuff was circumstantial. He needed Adam, otherwise the story was going to be pretty much dead in the water. But once John promised to protect Adam's identity, the two of them began talking, and before long, Adam's nerves had began to calm, and he was able to start telling John Carreyrou his side of the story. One of the first things that John wanted to know is that Rochelle had told John that Ian confided in her that Theranos' blood analyzers do not work. Was that true? John wanted to hear it straight from Adam. Do Theranos devices not work? And Adam was like, yeah, Rochelle was telling you the truth. They do not work at all. They never did. They were prone to error. They consistently failed quality control tests. And the machine itself, the Edison, it did a handful of tests, but they were running most of their blood tests on third-party commercial blood analyzers with diluted blood 
since they only took a finger stick size sample. John admitted that it took him a minute to really grasp what the whole diluting the blood was all about. And John actually conveyed it really well, at least I think he did, speaking as a layperson who probably wouldn't have grasped it either. But Adam broke it down for him pretty simply, and I think I've been able to walk you through the dilution process as well, and we basically understood it. But Adam said, bottom line is Theranos didn't want anyone to find out that their machines weren't working, so they rigged up the third-party machines, modified them to run their tests on much smaller blood samples, which had to be diluted twice, really causing the analyte's concentration to get too low, and when it's too low, machines can't accurately test for anything. Adam told John that he tried to get Elizabeth to delay placing Theranos devices in Walgreens and warned her about some of the most basic tests being extremely unreliable and gave the example of a perfectly healthy individual getting results indicating that their levels of potassium in their system were so high that they should actually technically be dead right now. Wildly crazy results they were getting back from the Edison and from the third-party analyzers with that, that overly diluted blood. Adam told John how Theranos was cheating on their proficiency testings, which means that they were breaking federal regulations. John took notes as quickly as he could while he was trying to take everything that Adam was telling him in. Adam said that Elizabeth constantly talked about revolutionizing blood testing technology, but also said that Elizabeth had a very poor grasp and understanding of anything science or math-based, which John had already suspected based on her quotes in the New Yorker article. Adam also said that Elizabeth wasn't in charge of Theranos' day-to-day operations. That would be Sonny Balwani. Adam called Sonny a liar, an ignorant bully who ran the company with fear and intimidation. And the biggest surprise, for John anyway, Elizabeth and Sonny are an item. This gave the story that really juicy twist. The very first female billionaire in Silicon Valley is doing the you-know-what with her you-know-who. Yeah, get that image out of our heads right now. That put a whole new spin on the story for John as well. Silicon Valley's very first female billionaire is making nice with Eagle 2, a guy almost 20 years older than her. It would have been slightly more scandalous if Theranos wasn't privately held. If they had gone public, there would definitely be more scrutiny. And the bottom line is that there is no official rule about canoodling amongst the CEO and the COO. It just makes for questionable leadership. And I mean, honestly, Elizabeth and Sonny didn't even need to be in a relationship for there to already be crazy questionable leadership going on here. But what surprised John Carreyrou even more was the fact that nobody on the board of directors had any idea that there was any extracurricular stuff going on between Elizabeth and Sonny. And any article published about Theranos and Elizabeth, if they even brought up the subject, stated clearly that Elizabeth was single. Henry Kissinger 
even told the New Yorker that he was trying to play matchmaker with her at times, trying to set Elizabeth up with somebody. Nobody on the board knew. So that showed John that Elizabeth Holmes was very adept at keeping secrets from her board of directors. So would that be the only thing that Elizabeth lied to her board about? Or is there more? Spoiler alert, there's more. Adam told John that he spoke with both Elizabeth and Sonny about his worries regarding Theranos' technology. He was worried about the inaccurate results, the unreliability of their devices, and the big issue with the cheating on the proficiency testings. But his emails and phone calls all fell on deaf ears. They did not want to hear it, and all Sonny would do was try to bury these issues by putting Adam off or making excuses. But Sonny did make sure with every email that everything that they had to say to one another was considered privileged. Adam expressed his concerns about his name being the one listed on the laboratory's certification. He was afraid that he was going to be held responsible if ever Theranos falls under any kind of investigation. He had forwarded those emails to himself in order to try and have a safety net protecting himself in that he tried pointing out the problems that they were having only to be pushed aside and ignored. But the company investigated and discovered that he had sent those emails and told him that they would sue him for breach of contract if he didn't erase them. The thing that Adam really was losing sleep over wasn't so much about getting in trouble or getting sued by Theranos, but rather the danger that Theranos could potentially be putting patients in with these crazy unreliable blood tests and the two worst case scenarios that they were facing if they continued testing patients in the manner that they were is one, if someone is given a false positive on a test, then that person could very well be receiving treatments that they do not need. The other is if someone is given a false negative and that person just carries on with their lives with the condition that went undiagnosed, causing them to fail to get treatment and could possibly cost them their lives. When John finally hung up with Adam, he knew that he could now stop fishing around for the next big story. This story found him, and John was excited. This is exactly what he was hoping to stumble upon, but he had to do his due diligence. He had to go digging for facts. We know how hard Theranos works at keeping their secrets a secret. John needed to do some studying up on biotechnology. And this story was going to take a lot of time to corroborate things. No matter, John Carreyrou was onto something big and he was there for it. The next time John spoke with Adam, he asked if there were any other former Theranos employees who might be willing to talk, just so that he could start seeing if stories were matching up. He needed to corroborate some of the things that Adam was telling him. Adam gave John the names of seven individuals. He got in touch with two of them, but they were really adamant about their identities being protected. They were understandably nervous and fearful of being sued by Theranos. One of them was a former clinical lab technician who was very hesitant to get into too many details, but said, 
enough to confirm for John that there was something there to be investigated further. She told John that she was extremely troubled with what she felt was doing potential harm to patients and that she needed to resign because she could not be a part of that. She could not sign her name off on anybody's blood test in good conscience. And the other person who spoke with John in these beginning stages was a technical supervisor in the lab who told John that Sonny and Elizabeth ran Theranos using intimidation and secrecy. John was quickly making good progress here. John had Adam explain the whole thing about the proficiency testing, that they were conducting tests on third-party analyzers, but reporting that they were running the proficiency tests on Theranos devices. So Theranos does have commercial analyzers. Adam confirmed that. They purchased them from Siemens, and this corroborated what he had been told by Phyllis's husband, Andrew, that Theranos was one of Siemens' biggest buyers. Adam also revealed to John, for the first time to anyone outside of Theranos, that there were actually two labs inside of Theranos' headquarters. One had the third-party blood testing machines, and the other was stocked full of Edison's. When the lab was inspected for its certification, they only showed the representative with the lab that had the third-party machines not the one with their proprietary device, the Edison's. They passed their inspection, but Adam knew that they were being deceitful about it. Adam told John that Theranos had begun working on a newer version of their machines that they were calling the 4S. It was sort of like a companion or an extension of the Edison that was supposed to be able to run the tests that the Edison was incapable of running but they were never able to get the 4S working properly and it never went commercial. They were attempting to buy themselves more time by running diluted blood tests on modified Siemens machines. That was supposed to be the temporary fix while they worked to perfect some version of their blood testing machines, but none of them ever worked properly. None of them ever worked reliably. Soon, running tests on Siemens machines became the only way that Theranos was running their blood tests. The 4S was a bigger flop than the Edison and the Minilab combined. So John could clearly see now what was going on at Theranos. The company had made all of these big, huge promises. One finger stick, one drop of blood, no needles, less pain, less cost, more accuracy, blah, 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 and they couldn't deliver. They began this whole big, huge, convoluted plan to cover up what they were doing so that they could try and lie their way through it until they figured out what their next step was going to be. That might work at many of the Silicon Valley companies as long as it didn't have anything to do with the medical industry. There's no cutting corners when people are depending on getting accurate results about their health. This was horrifying. Wellness centers, by February of 2015, when John first jumped onto this investigation, had been up and running for almost a year and a half. There were 40 of them in Arizona and one in California, and they were all running blood tests on totally unsuspecting customers and patients. 
As the second conversation between Adam and John was coming to an end, Adam brought up something that grabbed John's attention very quickly. Board member, secretary, George Schultz. He had a grandson that used to work at Theranos, and his name was Tyler. Adam didn't know why Tyler left Theranos, but he was certain that it was not on pleasant terms. So this was starting to get really good. John Carreyrou, he made note of Tyler's name as a reminder that he had a good lead on a potentially excellent source. John had started working really hard and diligently when it came to corroborating the things that Adam had told him, but he was running into a problem. Everyone was eerily afraid to even whisper the name Theranos out of fear of being sued. They had signed NDAs and could not take the risk. Theranos could wipe them out. But John did manage to get a hold of one former higher-up in the clinical lab who said that he would talk off the record. That would make his conversations with the source different from the others in that they said that they would speak to John, but only on what journalists term as deep background. That means John can use anything that they tell them in any articles that he writes, as long as they remain anonymous. When someone wants to speak to John off the record, that means that he can't publish anything that he is told by the source. So it was a little disappointing, but it did help confirm a few more things for John and had him feeling comfortable about continuing to move forward on this potential takedown of a Silicon Valley unicorn and their new favorite star, Elizabeth Holmes. Then John Carreyrou had a stroke of good luck. I mentioned in the last part, I believe, that Adam Rosendorf had consulted with an attorney specializing in representing whistleblowers. And when he emailed that attorney, he had sent over a sample email exchange that he had had with Sonny Balwani, Daniel Young, and the collab director, Mark Pandori. And Elizabeth was CC'd in most of the emails. It was about 18 emails going back and forth in this particular chain where they were talking about the proficiency testing. Well, the attorney's office still had that email and they were able to send it back to Adam, who then sent it over to John. Buried in this exchange was a rant from Sonny getting mad that Adam and Mark were running proficiency tests on the Edison, which is technically what they were supposed to be doing and that their machines were failing the test. So this was an actual acknowledgement on Sonny's part that they knew about the deceit and the wrongdoing. And so did Elizabeth, because she's in all the CCs. So just when John Carreyrou was making some good progress in confirming the facts of the story, he hit somewhat of a roadblock. So now this is getting towards the end of March of 2015. John had been talking to his informant, Adam Rosendorf, for more than a month and a half by then. But suddenly, Adam started getting more anxious and nervous. And he told John that he would stand by everything that he had told him up to that point. But he had gotten to a place where he no longer wanted to be part of the investigation. 
He just couldn't deal with the risk that he was taking. He was afraid of losing everything. Speaking to John was causing him so much stress that it was affecting his work performance. And aside from losing everything, he was really afraid that this was having an impact on his health. And it felt like any day he was going to have a massive heart attack. John understood. And while he tried to ask Adam to reconsider, Adam was confident that he couldn't carry on like this. And John had to accept it. Maybe he would be able to give Adam some time and space to reflect and think about it. And perhaps sometime in the future, he would reach back out to John. But that's all he could hope for. And one of the things John wanted to confirm about Theranos and its alleged technology is that he wanted to get an opinion from an expert who really had no dog in the fight to get some real unbiased information. So he spoke to the vice chairman of the University of California at San Francisco's Department of Laboratory Medicine, Tim Hamill. And when John asked him about diluting blood and the methods that Theranos was using to run proficiency tests, Dr. Hamill said that the way that Theranos was doing things was pretty shady. He also said to John that the problem with running blood tests using blood from the finger, unlike a venous blood draw from the arm, capillary blood is polluted with fluids and tissues and cells that interfere with tests and make measurements less accurate. So we already know that. Specifically, we were told how potassium levels become elevated when you try to squeeze blood out of a finger. You burst red blood cells and it puts all this extra potassium into your system. That's why that test was such a problem for the lab technicians that were running blood tests using diluted samples. They were getting these crazy high potassium levels that were just not even possible. So there is a thing that Adam had mentioned to John before he said he didn't want to be involved anymore. And this involved a nurse who worked at one of the Walgreens wellness centers. And her name was Carmen Washington. And she had a complaint about the blood test. John was able to find Carmen and he got her to speak to him over the phone. She told John that three of her patients told her that when they got their blood test results back, that there was something off about the results. One was a high school sophomore who had such high potassium concentration in her blood that the results suggested that she was likely going to suffer a heart attack. Carmen said it was the kind of results that you don't get in an otherwise young, healthy, athletic teenage girl. Then Carmen told him about two other patients whose blood tests showed unusually high concentrations of thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH. In fact, Carmen contacted both of those patients and asked them to come back to the wellness clinic to have their blood drawn again. And this time, when the results came back, they showed abnormally low concentration of TSH. That's when Carmen decided for herself that Theranos finger stick tests could not be considered reliable. Adam had already told John in the course of their conversations that it was the THS proficiency test that the Edison was unable to pass. 
So sometime during the onset of all this, John Carreyrou was paying particularly close attention to who was taking a look at his profile on LinkedIn. And he happened to notice one day that Tyler Schultz had viewed his profile. Tyler's name was given as one potential whistleblower that had a particularly unique connection at Theranos. It was his grandpa who happened to be one of Theranos' most important members of the board of directors, one of Lizzie's favorite old rich white guys, and certified Elizabeth Holmes superfan, former Secretary of State George Schultz. Once John saw that Tyler had a peek at his LinkedIn, he went ahead and sent Tyler a direct message thinking that he must be looking at his profile because he must have heard that he was investigating Theranos. It took Tyler a month to decide to contact John, but eventually he did, much to John's relief. He knew that people were afraid to talk, and he really couldn't blame them. But Tyler did eventually call, and John can tell, like Adam, that Tyler needed to get things off of his chest. And also like Adam, Tyler was terrified of Theranos tracking him down if they found out that he was talking to a Wall Street Journal investigative reporter. Tyler had even taken the added step of acquiring a burner phone just to make sure the phone calls between him and Carrie Rue could not be traced back to him. Tyler wanted John's explicit promise to keep his identity confidential, which, of course, John promised. And from there, Tyler gave him a rundown of his short-lived time at Theranos. And in all, Tyler was there for about eight months. Tyler also related to John that the reason why he wanted to speak to him was because he was very worried about the potentially erroneous information that patients would be getting from Theranos blood tests. In addition to that, Tyler was worried about his grandpa, his grandpa's legacy, and his reputation. Tyler knew that Theranos' days were numbered, but he was desperate to get the ball rolling on this investigation before it would be too late for his grandpa to be able to clear his name. Because grandpa is no spring chicken here. By this time, in to the early spring of 2015, Secretary George Schultz was 94 years old. Tyler didn't want Grandpa to suddenly pass away under this cloud of Theranos controversy and for that to be his lasting legacy. If Tyler could pull Grandpa away from the punch bowl, if he could get him to stop drinking the Kool-Aid, then he would be able to turn things around for himself. As long as he made it, to the other side of this Theranos thing alive. Tyler also had a few important emails that he still saved, including the email that he had sent to Sonny and Elizabeth that ran down the list of his concerns with some of the lab's practices. He sent what he had over to John, and it wasn't too long after connecting with Tyler that John decided it was time to visit Palo Alto, California. But before John was going to go to California, he was going to stop off in Phoenix, Arizona first. He wanted to find out for sure, get some solid proof that Theranos was giving patients inaccurate results on their blood tests. He wanted to see if he could find any doctors who 
got back wonky results from the Theranos lab and had the patient go to another lab to get retested. He also wanted to try and find Carmen Washington, but she no longer worked at Walgreens and didn't know the names of the patients that she had told him about that complained about their weird blood test results. So John went on Yelp to see if Walgreens Wellness Centers had received any negative reviews. He found a Yelp review from a user named Natalie, and from the looks of her profile, John thought that she might be a doctor. So he sent her a message and she got back to him the next day. Turns out that Natalie was a doctor named Nicole Sundin, and she had a practice near Phoenix, and she left a very bad review for Theranos. Dr. Sundin was not really pleased with the Theranos blood testing analyzers due to the results that she got back from Theranos labs, and the results from one of her patients was so scary that she immediately had that patient, a woman named Maureen Gluntz, rushed to the emergency room. So Maureen, she was in her 50s at the time, and she was exactly that worst-case scenario that those who complained and resigned from Theranos were worried was going to happen. That's Maureen. It happened. Dr. Sending sent Maureen to the Walgreens in order to get some labs done. The blood draw would be conducted by Theranos' phlebotomist and tested in their laboratory. When the results came back, it showed that Maureen had extremely high levels of calcium, protein, glucose, and three liver enzymes. Dr. Sundin thought all indicators pointed to Maureen being on the verge of having a stroke and had her transported to the ER immediately. She was there for more than four hours on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving that year. She went through CT scans, MRIs, more blood tests. They finally let her go home when the new blood test results showed that everything was normal. She had no elevated levels of anything. So after a week of fear and worry, Maureen was finally convinced that she was okay and that she was not about to drop dead from a massive stroke. But it ended up costing Maureen a pretty penny. All of that unnecessary testing. She was self-employed, a real estate broker. She purchases her own health coverage and it just didn't cover everything. Her out-of-pocket costs amounted to $3,000. When John met with Dr. Sundin in person, he found out that more than a dozen of her patients had tested abnormally high for calcium and potassium, all of which she questioned the accuracy of. But when she attempted to contact Theranos about the unusual test results that her patients were receiving, Dr. Sundin never heard back from anyone at Theranos. John decided to check things out for himself. Dr. Sundin wrote him an order to have some labs done, and he took it to the closest Walgreens the following morning, so he would have some time to fast. When John got to the wellness clinic, it wasn't as impressive as he thought it was going to be. After all, if you remember, Safeway Wellness Centers were being remodeled to look like a relaxing day spa. The one that John went into was small and boring, kind of like Sunny Belwani. It wasn't anything like John had imagined based on what he knew about Elizabeth and Theranos and the way that she wanted things to be. But anyway, the person taking John's blood wanted him to roll up his sleeve and John was like, uh, isn't this supposed to be a finger stick blood draw? But the phlebotomist told him that some of the labs on his doctor's order called for a blood draw from the vein instead. 
Adam Rosendorf told John that this would be the case. Of the 240 tests that Theranos offered at that time, only 80 of them were completed using a finger stick blood sample. And of those 80, maybe one dozen of them were actually tested on the Edison. The rest of them were done on modified Siemens blood analyzers. The remaining 160 tests all required a venous blood sample with that gigantic hypodermic needle, the very thing that Elizabeth described as a means of torture, the very thing that Theranos had promised that they had eliminated from this entire wonderful bloodletting experience. After John left the Walgreens, he took the other order that Dr. Sundin wrote for him to a lab core to have a comparison blood draw done there too. She told John that she was going to have her blood drawn at both places also to see how their two sets of results matched up. While John waited for his blood test results, he went and spoke to a few more Phoenix area doctors. One of them, Dr. Adrian Stewart, told John that she had one patient who received test results that indicated that she might have deep vein thrombosis, meaning that she has blood clots forming. She was supposed to take a much-anticipated trip to Europe, which she ended up postponing because she was told that people who have deep vein thrombosis shouldn't be flying because that can cause blood clots to come loose, go through the bloodstream, and potentially end up with a clot in the lungs, leading to a pulmonary embolism and possible death. The doctor ended up doing an ultrasound to check for blood clots, but found none. She ordered a new set of blood tests, and when all of that came back normal, that's when the doctor became suspicious of Theranos' blood test results. Another patient of Dr. Stewart's also received results that indicated elevated levels of thyroid-stimulating hormone, just like two patients that Walgreens phlebotomist Carmen Washington had too, the TSH. But this patient of Dr. Stewart's was already taking thyroid meds, and based on the results that she received from the Theranos labs, she should have increased the dosage that the patient was taking. But just to make sure, the doctor decided to have the blood retested at a different lab, an affiliate of Quest Diagnostics, and those results showed normal levels of TSH. If the doctor had gone by Theranos' results and she had increased her patient's thyroid prescription, there could have been a very tragic outcome. That patient was pregnant. Increasing her thyroid hormone levels to a point where they would be too high could have put her pregnancy in danger. John Carreyrou was able to speak with yet another doctor that had a gripe with Theranos, Dr. Gary Betts. He had started sending patients to Walgreens Wellness Centers for blood tests, but he had quit more than six months earlier. One of his patients was taking prescription medication that was meant to lower her blood pressure. But one of the side effects of this particular blood pressure medication is that it can cause increased potassium in the patient. So the doctor tracks this patient's potassium levels regularly just to make sure it's in healthy concentrations. 
So the doctor sent this patient to the new wellness center to get the blood testing done there. A finger stick size sample, quick results, because it's something that they have to do regularly, that would be a really easy and convenient way for her to take care of that. It's easy to see why patients and doctors alike wanted to give this a go. But this doctor's patient ended up getting results that showed potentially deadly levels of potassium in her system. So they sent her right back to Theranos to get retested. And for whatever reason, the phlebotomist tried three times to draw blood, but was unable and sent the patient away. When the doctor found out that his patient was sent home without having blood drawn from the wellness center, he was pretty mad because it was critical that he provided the appropriate treatment for these extremely high potassium levels. He sent the patient to that same Quest Lab affiliate only to get results that showed perfectly normal potassium levels. So it was another unnecessarily panicked doctor and unnecessarily panicked patient. Dr. Betts stopped sending his patients to Walgreens Wellness Centers whenever he ordered lab tests. So John knew that the word was spreading that he was investigating Theranos because people were starting to trickle into his emails, including a guy named Matthew Traub, who worked at a public relations firm that represented Theranos. John's investigation wasn't meant to stay this massive secret, and that isn't really the way the Wall Street Journal does things anyway. They don't publish articles without letting the subject of their investigation know first. Before anything negative is ever going to be published about Theranos in the Wall Street Journal, John is going to let them know everything that he's gathered and offer them the chance to refute anything or to give their side of the story. And they would give Theranos plenty of time to answer to the allegations. But anyway, John talked to Matthew Traub and he told him, yes, he's working on a story on Theranos and asked him if he would be able to schedule an interview with Elizabeth for him, as well as schedule a visit for him to see Theranos' headquarters and their laboratory. And he would be there in California in the Silicon Valley area the very first week of May of 2015. And he would appreciate it if he would be able to schedule a meeting with Elizabeth during that time. Matthew Traub said that he would get in touch with Elizabeth to let, and let him know. So anyway, a few days later, John was back at his office in Manhattan when he got some mail, like actual physical mail, from the post office from Dr. Sundin. It was their lab results. So he opened them up, and when he compared his lab results from Theranos to his lab results from LabCorp, he found out that Theranos had three of his test results reading unusually high and one of his test results reading unusually low. But on the LabCorp results, those same four results came back with normal levels. And then he saw on LabCorp's results that they marked John as having two of his cholesterol levels as elevated, but Theranos had those two cholesterol levels at desirable and near optimal. Dr. Sundin's results were more troubling than John's, however. Her Theranos test indicated that she had extremely low levels of cortisol, which is a sign of Addison's disease, 
also known as adrenal insufficiency. It's not very common and it happens when your body does not produce enough of a certain hormone. With Addison's disease, your adrenal glands aren't producing enough cortisol, which can bring blood pressure way too low to dangerous levels. And if it doesn't get treated, it can lead to death. But in a side-by-side comparison to her cortisol levels on her LabCorp report, it showed that her levels were in normal range. So public relations guy Matthew Traub got back to John and told him that Elizabeth's schedule was booked up through the time that he was going to be in Palo Alto, that he needed more than just a couple of weeks notice to get John an appointment with her. John wasn't going to cancel or postpone his trip, though. He had plenty of others that he wanted to talk to, including Tyler Schultz and Rochelle Gibbons specifically. He was also going to connect with Erica Chung, who was willing to speak with him, but also demanded the strictest of confidentiality. John met with Erica Chung at a brewery in Oakland. He could see that Erica was nervous to be talking to him just like every other former Theranos employee. They were terrified of getting sued. But once John told Erica about some of the information that he'd uncovered thus far about Theranos' shady business practices, Erica was able to calm her nerves a little bit and relax. Because Erica worked inside Theranos' lab, she was actually there during the lab's inspection that took place in December of 2013. Both Adam and Erica told John that they had deceived the representative who carried out the inspection. She told John how they had two separate labs, Jurassic Park, which is where the third-party blood analyzers were at, and Normandy, which is where all the Edisons were at. Erica recalled how they were given instructions to not enter or exit the Normandy lab while the state inspector was there. She was only there to inspect the lab with the third-party machines. Erica told John about going with Tyler to his grandpa's house the evening that he resigned from Theranos. Erica described how shocking it was that little to no real effort was put into scientifically validating the tests that they were running on the Edison. And Erica was clear about a number of things. Theranos regularly ignored testing errors and quality control fails. They have little to no concern about the well-being of the customers who are getting blood tests done in Walgreens Wellness Centers, and Theranos should have never, ever begun taking real patient blood samples. The company was not anywhere close to being prepared to going live. John met up with Tyler Schultz the next afternoon at a place in Mountain View called Stein's Beer Garden. Tyler went into details about the eight months that he worked at Theranos, all the way up until the day that he resigned when his mom called to pass along a threat that Elizabeth had made through his grandpa. Tyler also made it abundantly clear that his grandpa was standing by Elizabeth. He described how cringe the Thanksgiving gathering had been at his grandpa's house, which was only about six or seven months since he had resigned from Theranos. When he showed up with his parents and brother, Tyler found himself having to mingle with Elizabeth and her parents. Tyler had to pretend like nothing had ever happened, and it only got worse for Tyler when Elizabeth gave a toast to the entire Schultz family. This is what John wrote about Tyler and Erica. 
Quote, they were both very young and had been junior employees at Theranos, but I found them credible as sources because so much of what they told me corroborated what Adam Rosendorf had said. I was also impressed by their sense of ethics. They felt strongly that what they had witnessed was wrong and they were willing to take the risk of speaking to me to right that wrong. The next person John met up with while he was in California was Phyllis Gardner, Stanford medical professor and Elizabeth Dowder number one. She showed John around the Stanford campus while she pointed out all the sites and how when she first met Elizabeth that her initial idea was the patch idea with the microneedles that would be able to run blood tests practically in real time as well as administer whatever treatment the doctors ordered. John also found out that the new headquarters that Theranos had just moved into in November of 2014 was actually located at a site where there used to be a Wall Street Journal printing facility. And the last person that John met up with on his trip was the widow of Ian Gibbons. Ian was the former lead chemist who had attempted to take his own life on the eve of the morning that he had been subpoenaed by Richard Fuzz's defense team in the patent lawsuit that Theranos had filed against him. Ian's name was on just about every one of Theranos's patents, as was Elizabeth's as co-inventor. Richard Fuzz had come to believe that Elizabeth had no real or actual scientific or medical input on any of the patents, and if that were true, and if she were listed as an inventor or a co-inventor, the fact that Elizabeth had nothing to do with the patents could have invalidated every single one of them. Ian wanted out of testifying. He believed in doing so, it would mean the end of his time at Theranos. He was going to be fired and he wasn't going to be able to cope with that very well. He already struggled through being fired and unexpectedly rehired on the same day, but not with one demotion, but eventually he would be demoted twice. And that would leave Ian struggling with the disappointment it was to his career and his life's work. It was degrading for a man as proud as Ian had been. Rochelle told John that everything that she was telling him could be on the record. She held what could have been potentially millions of dollars worth of Theranos stock that had belonged to Ian that she inherited from him, but she didn't care. She blamed Theranos for Ian's death and didn't want the stocks anymore. And besides, she didn't think that they were worth anything. The next day, John was back in Manhattan and he was pretty sure that he would be able to publish his story very soon. He had enough evidence and corroboration to have confidence in his reporting. But John Carreyrou was about to get a taste of what exactly he was getting himself into when he decided to take on Theranos. All right, dreamers, I want to stop there. I'm trying to get this written and put together and hopefully the next part. I actually have that about, I'll say 80% written and I'm hoping to record that tomorrow so I can get back-to-back episodes out there because I know that I'm behind. We are on the home stretch here. 
We are getting to our final lap around this Theranos track. And I'm excited to wrap this up once and for all. And we can try and move on to the next exciting thing. I want to remind you to join the Facebook group. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. I am also on TikTok, but that's mostly videos of the dogs. And don't forget that if you're looking for something to dive into while you wait for the next installment of California Dreaming, check out the content that we have on Patreon. There are some single episodes. There are some multi-part episodes. It's a good variety. There's something for everybody except your kids. Don't bring your kids around here because this is not good for them to listen to. I want to thank you all again for listening. I am going to California this Thursday, the 28th, to finalize everything and say my goodbyes. I want to thank you for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams.